Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out why a suspected baby bust during the pandemic was instead a bit of a baby bump in the U.S. at least and why more flexible work arrangements may have helped. Journalist and author Robert Foster joins us to talk about his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, when the Republican Party lost its mind and what that could mean for the outcome of Tuesday's midterm elections in the U.S. The 2022 Silver Cross mom, Candy Greff, speaks to me about her son, Master Corporal Byron Greff, the last Canadian soldier killed in Afghanistan. The 28-year-old husband and father of two was killed in a suicide attack on a bus in Kabul in October of 2011. His mom talks about the honor and responsibility of representing her son, her family, and all those who've lost loved ones serving this country. But first, provincial and territorial health ministers are meeting with their federal counterpart in Vancouver for two days, beginning on Monday. More federal funding for health care, a system that is in trouble, will be a hot topic. But the Canadian Medical Association tells me a plan to better recruit and retain healthcare staff is the real key. First up tonight, it's no mystery the healthcare system across the country needs a lot more than a Disney Plus cancellation. It is struggling under the weight of the pandemic still, as well as lots of backups, burnout, and so forth. I was reading this weekend about huge delays in emergency rooms, including at kids' hospitals. It's it's dire. Places still closed, not open all the time in smaller communities. So it's with added urgency that the province, provincial and territorial health ministers are meeting with their federal counterpart in Vancouver today and tomorrow, the first in-person meeting for that group since all the way back in 2018. Top of the agenda, as always, is money or the Canada Health Transfer. To be precise, the provinces and the territories are looking for more. Uh, they want them to spend more uh, as the struggle continues with demands from the ongoing pandemic, toxic drug and mental health crises. And the upcoming winter is looking pretty bleak already. Here's BC's health minister who's hosting this event, Adrian Dix. This is going to be a difficult winter because... We're going to see, and we've seen this in the southern hemisphere already, significant increases and challenges related to respiratory illnesses, including, but not limited to, COVID-19. The good news is the federal government is promising more money. However, there are strings attached. Uh, The the federal health minister says provinces and territories must be willing to work with Ottawa on a world-class health data system. We would do this if provinces and territories are prepared to commit to a meaningful expansion of the sharing and use of common key health indicators and to therefore build a world-class health data system for our country. That's Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister. Uh, But while funding may be in there for a lot of people, but for groups, including the Canadian Medical Association, they also want to see a focus on some urgent solutions around staffing shortages and how to better recruit and retain healthcare workers of all stripes. And that would include a Canada-wide strategy to better gather data on the workforce to make sure demand surges are met. Well, joining me now with more on that is Dr. Alika Lafontaine. He's an anesthesiologist in northern Alberta, but he's also the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So it, it, a lot of expectations, I would imagine, it's been the first time in a long time that everyone's been in the same room. There have been a lot of issues at hand. Uh, what are your expectations going in? I think that it's it's right to have high expectations because we have a very high level of crisis. You know, there's concurrent crises full unfolding across Canada right now. And the most important part of that is it's really affecting patients, you know, showing up and not being able to find access to a family physician, walking into a walk-in clinic, waiting all day, and then having to come back again the next day, going to the ER and waiting, you know, 15, 20 plus hours, along with other problems that, that patients are definitely reporting across the country. It is important for us to come out of this meeting with something tangible. And I think the things that we're looking towards are really within that prescription of hope that we move forward with, with the Canadian Nurses Association Healthcare Can. You know, we're, we're looking at improving working conditions, moving towards pan-national licensure, integrating virtual care within in-person care, not only for its convenience, but also its ability to, you know, expand our, our workforce and the way that they can impact patient care. You know, at the end of the day, really turning the tide when it comes to the experiences that, that patients are having right now, which are really negative. Uh, what's your sense of uh, having, I know, I, I know it's just starting, but is your sense that it's, it feels confrontational or does it feel collegial at least that, uh, that everyone there wants to sit and talk about this or, cause we hear so much about the money, right? It's always about the funding and the funding, but I know you, you've looked beyond the, that to other things that you think can be done faster. Yeah. It's, it's important to know that with these types of discussions, conflict is just an inevitable part of it. 
you know, and, and we've often said at the CMA that it's important for us to work through the conflict so we can get to the other side. And the other side is really solving patients' problems. And so I'm actually excited that on the first day we're, you know, being honest about the challenges. You know, you, you hear from Minister Duclos today that the federal government will be providing additional monies and that they'll be working with provinces in order to make sure that those those monies are directed in ways that make sense for those provinces. And, you know, the provinces on the other side are, are saying, you know, we, we definitely need the funding, but we want to maintain our flexibility. And so pushing through those discussions to the other side is going to get us to the point where we actually start to act. And the action part is what providers and patients across the country are waiting for. Yeah, you, you've mentioned that you'd like to be able to emerge from these meetings, not just with more talk of funding uh, formulas and so on, but you want to you want to emerge from these meetings mm-hmm. with something tangible. What might that look like? What do you think is a good first step at this point? Because it feels like there's so, you know, heading into winter ERs are packed, as you were mentioning before, the list of problems that patients will see is long. You know, as someone who's dealt with numberless resuscitations over my career, uh, one of the great challenges of severe situations is that it's hard to make a turnaround. But the other part that is a silver lining is anything you do is actually an improvement. And so I, I think because of the severity of the crisis that's happening in the healthcare system right now, there's a variety of different actions that can get us to that other point. You know, the most important point is that we start now. You know, so whether they focus on improving health worker conditions, whether or not we start sharing health human resource data in ways that we didn't before, you know, start to make moves towards regional or national licensure and registration, you know, any of these steps will start to move us towards the other big problems because they're all tied together. You know, you affect one of these foundational parts of healthcare, you'll start to have a trickle-down effect that will affect everything positively. Because you get the sense, even looking at what BC announced recently with family doctors, you get the sense that a lot of provinces are really looking to try to solve these problems. But at the same time, they are they are competing against each other in a sense, too, um, for, you know, for limited resources right now. You know, the, the competition will remain as long as we don't create a vision for a national healthcare system. You know, there will always be problems with making sure that you recruit certain people into certain places in order to provide effective care. But, you know, if we lean into collaboration, we can open up the way that care is currently provided into new ways of providing care that work a lot better for both providers and patients. You know, we, we often talk about team-based care, but an enormous barrier to team-based care and team-based care through virtual care is, you know, the inability for people to work across different jurisdictions, you know, the inability of people to be able to focus on tasks that they do well instead of titles or certifications that they have. You know, these types of moves will really help our 13 siloed health systems work towards the next iteration of what healthcare can be. And that's what gets me really excited. I, I think that's what gets the, the other uh, advocacy organizations here excited. And I, I think that today is a good first step and it shows some signs that tomorrow we may start to move in that direction. Yeah, that, um, Minister Duclos today st- spoke about uh, wanting to see a world-class health data system. I know that's something that you've been talking about, your organization's been talking about for a very long time. Uh, that that's, seems like a good first move. I don't know what kind of strings are attached to that when it comes to the provinces or how they'll react, but it sounds like a, a, a logical step. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's always interesting when you look at healthcare versus other parts in our lives. You know, uh, we still use fax machines in the healthcare system. I, I don't know of a single person that I know who has a fax machine inside their house or uses e-fax. You know, so we really need to pull healthcare into today. And the only way that we're going to do that is by starting to break down some of these silos and, you know, start to lean into a, a national collaboration in, in one of these many different areas. You know, with health human resource data, you know, Facebook knows me down to the amount of detail that it can predict what types of things I buy. You know, there's no reason why we can't understand where people want to live, why they want to live there, the ty- the types of things that they can do in order to improve, improve patients' lives, and then have a way to actually capture whether or not they provide that value. And I, I think that that's the real promise of health human resources. It's going to be a bit of a road to get there. But the fact that we're talking about it and it's no longer on the fringes like it's been in previous years, I mean, that, that is something that I think Canadians should start to get a little bit excited about. Dr. Alika Lafontaine is with us. Uh, he is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, Dr. Lafontaine, you mentioned this as well, that, that you'd like to see some solutions just about some, some not quick, they're never quick fixes, are they? But but mm-hmm. some some initiatives that really are, are I, I don't like this term, but human focused, right? Like there are mm-hmm. people behind those numbers. We talk about a nursing shortage. We're not talking about numbers. We're talking about people and how to keep, how to get them to stay, how to get them, uh, how to bring in new uh, recruits, how to retain those you have, how to prevent those people from wanting to take retirement early? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think really getting back to that, that human part of medical care uh, is, is something that we really have the chance to really turn, turn the dial on. You know, uh, medical care has been so fixated on how to produce the most volume at the lowest cost over the past couple of decades that to a great degree, we, we've forgotten the people in it. And now patients, when they come to receive health care, to a great degree, actually don't feel that they're connecting with the healthcare providers anymore. And so, you know, there, there's all these solutions, but at the end of the day, what are we actually trying to create? We're trying to create a moment for you as a patient to connect with the person across from you and get your problem solved. Now, who is that person? What do they do? What types of teams do they work in? How do we make sure that they're functioning at a very high level? Those are problems for the system to take care of. But if we can stay focused on that connection part, you know, creating that time and that quality time in order to get what you need as a patient, we really can create a much better healthcare system than we have right now. You talked about morale being really low coming into this. How is that manifesting itself? And, and do you think something as simple as a few wins here might turn that around a little bit? You know, we're, we're really at an inflection point where the cautious optimism that a lot of us share can quickly spiral down into hopelessness. You know, we, we really do need to start to see some sort of movement into whatever is going to come next for the healthcare system. And, you know, looking back in my own career, I, I think back to what did I sacrifice to become a doctor? You know, I sacrificed my youth. I sacrificed a lot of relationships, obviously time, effort, sleep to a great degree, yeah, you know, yeah. and all of these things I, I sacrificed so I could connect with patients and really get one of the most amazing moments that I think any job can ever give you, which is feeling like you really make an impact on someone's life you know, an impact that will last throughout their lifetime. And, you know, if we can get back to creating that opportunity for providers where they really feel like they're making changes in patients' lives, where it doesn't become so hard to advocate for people who need certain things within the healthcare system and where you, you know, walk away from your day feeling like you made an impact because a a lot of us aren't feeling that right now. You know, I, I believe morale can't do anything but go up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we hear it from any doctor we talk to that how tough it's been. And yeah, I remember, I remember from my university days, you know, doc, med students weren't out much. You know, uh, yeah. they weren't they weren't out much back. A lot that's a lot of sacrifice. Well, just on the money factor, though, mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about this all the time. It'll come up again uh, over the next few days. Do you think there's a right number from so, so that listeners understand when it comes to the whole funding argument? Uh, you know, the federal share being twenty two percent, wanting it back up to thirty five from what it used to be a fifty fifty. How do you, as the CMA, how do you make sense of those arguments? What's the answer here? I mean, who's right? Who's wrong? Or or is anyone right or wrong? You know, I I think the the truth is, to some degree, everything's arbitrary until it has the impact it's supposed to. Right. You know, whether you look at 22% or 35% or even 60%, I mean, if if we spend money and we get health in return, and as, as a result, our populace becomes more healthy and then generates, you know, more value and, you know, it, all the inevitable trickle-down effects of that, you know, it's really that endpoint that I think we should be focused on. And, you know, we definitely know that Canadian health systems across the 13 jurisdictions that we have do need additional money. We, we know that. We know that if change is going to happen, where we're going to transform the way that we work to team-based care, if we're going to start integrating virtual care more effectively, you know, all these other changes that we're talking about, it does take money in order to help people make that shift in their practice. And we do know that persons who are practicing, uh, you know, family physicians inside the community, you know, nurses within uh, wards inside the hospital, and everyone in between, I mean, they're really struggling to make ends meet when it comes to managing offices and, and the value that you feel coming out from work. I mean, you've seen stagnant you know, income over the last few years for a lot of different health professions. And so money is a part of that. But the most important part is making sure that we decrease the stress of helping people. You know, and, and once again, I, I think if we focus on that, all of these other things are going to come along. You know, and so what is the right number for uh, the, Can- the Canada's health transfer? I think the right number is the amount that we need to actually make change occur. And that will go lower the more focused we are on the things that will actually make an impact. Dr. LaFontaine, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Remembrance Day is coming up on Friday, of course. We'll pay tribute to the 158 Canadian soldiers who died in Afghanistan and the many, many, many more who've died representing and fighting for this country. I was on, I attended ramp ceremonies in Afghanistan at the height of, you know, I think it was July of 2005, then 2006. 
I remember one where it was so hot on the tarmac at Kandahar Airfield. It must have been about 55 or 60 degrees on the airfield that the pipers couldn't pipe. You know, there was the, the coffin was there with the flag draped over it and it was beyond heavy. And the piper couldn't pipe. He couldn't pipe because it was like, I guess it was so hot. It was so, you know, it was so dry. I, I just he couldn't pipe. And he just sort of sat on his haunches and put his pipes down, his bagpipes down. And, and, and that was that. And it was just the weight of those ramp ceremonies there in Afghanistan that were so, you know, they were so, you'll never forget them, right? It was, they were so tragic and, and so and heart-wrenching at the time. So I always think about that whenever we talk about the 158 people who died serving our country in Afghanistan. Uh, and the last one of them, the last one to die was 28-year-old Master Corporal Byron Greff from Alberta, a husband, father, son, and as you'll find out, much, much more. He was in the capital, Kabul, helping to train Afghan National Army soldiers in October of 2011. So Canada had pretty much gone by that point, uh, exactly 11, 11 years ago now, when a suicide bomber drove a vehicle into the armored bus that he was on. 21 people were killed, including Greff and four other NATO soldiers. Again, he was a father to a newborn. He was expected home for Christmas that year before he was meant to wrap up and head home in early 2012. Now instead, his mom, Candy Graff, will lay the wreath at the National War Memorial on Remembrance Day on behalf of all mothers who lost children in service to Canada. I spoke to her about her son, the family's loss, and about being chosen by the Royal Canadian Legion as this year's Silver Cross mom. Candy Graff, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben, for having me. This is always, uh, I guess, a bittersweet honor, isn't it? But an honor nonetheless. It certainly is a bittersweet honor. Um, I I don't know how how I can explain how honored that I am, other than saying I'm so so honored to do this on behalf of all of the other Silver Cross mothers and families that uh, have had to go through the heartbreak that my husband and my Lindsay. Byron's wife and children, siblings. That's why I say families, because there are so many people that are affected when a soldier is killed. Yeah, and and, and it's, you know, it's Afghanistan, the war there. I know we, I was talking to you about having been there myself. It feels like it, you know, the whole conflict is kind of in, a bit in the rearview mirror. But for so many families, for the 158 families, it, it, it will never be in the rearview mirror, will it? It will never be in the rearview mirror, not at all. It's it's forefront and at different times of the day, almost every day. And of course, when Remembrance Day gets closer and it starts when Byron's birthday is August 11th. So from a log- August 11th until November 11th, it's sort of heavy on us. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just because we're remembering all of those things that happened before he left to go back after the birth of his daughter. Tell me a bit about Byron, because it's, it's such an interesting story um, about how he found his way into the, into the military and to Afghanistan and, and just how it, what it was about him that, that, that felt that that was going to be his mission. I believe in grade nine, when he decided he wanted to join army cadets in Red Deer, we said, great, no problem. So I would drive him in every week and he enjoyed it. He didn't share much about what he did when he was there. When I asked him the question, what did you do tonight? Marched. That was his answer to me. And so then in grade 10 and grade 11, he didn't voice any interest in in joining the cadets again. But in grade 12, then he said, mom and dad, I'd like to join the military. And we were sort of surprised at that. We're not a military family. There aren't um, close relatives that are that have served in the past. Um, he has a cousin who is in at the base in Edmonton, but he he never ever really said why he wanted to join, except that I think as a child and as an uh, adolescent, a teenager, he was a determined soul. He was dedicated to what he wanted to do and very, very determined to do the best job that he could at no matter what it was he was doing. Yeah, you mentioned him uh, often determined and funny was sort of the way that, that I've heard you describe him. And that's a, that's, a, that's a really great combination, isn't it? 
It really is. It really is. When when uh, you're having a good time with family after you've had a dinner together, he would tell jokes for hours. And yet if there was something that needed to be done, he jumped right in. No hesitation at all. And if you needed some help with something, it didn't matter what it was. He was your guy. When did you know, when did he know that he was first going to go to Afghanistan, because I, I believe it was 2007 that he was first deployed, if I'm not mistaken. And that was a time where we already, I mean, there, it, it was dangerous. And we, I remember back to then, you know, we were all Canadians became very aware of just how deadly that conflict, that war had become. What was your reaction as a parent when he was, uh, when he was about to be deployed? We were very, very scared for him to go. And at the same time, we trusted that the military, with their absolute wonderful training that they give to their soldiers, that that he was trained properly and would follow every order to the letter and that he would be safe and that he would do the job he needed to do and do it well. It must have been, I mean, he must have been worried. What, what did he say to you? Because I think some of the when I remember speaking to soldiers there, one of the hardest parts was they realized how worried their loved ones would be. They knew, you know, and, and it was difficult for them to communicate that, to try to sort of, um, to try to reassure family back home that they were going to be okay because they didn't know. Absolutely. They wouldn't know. And with it being so deadly there, I think that when a Canadian military personnel signs on the dotted line, and he did in 2001, I think he knew that it could be dangerous. But at the same time, this is what he wanted to do. And he was determined that he was going to do that and do that job to the best of his ability. And he did. And when he graduated, he graduated from Quebec basic training in 2001 in the fall. And he went to battle school in Wainwright, Alberta. And in the spring of 2002, we went to his graduation in Wainwright. And the commanding officer came up to us and said, are you Graf's parents? And we said, yes. And he said to us, do you realize he may be sent to Afghanistan? And at that moment, since 9-11 had already happened, you, your stomach sort of does a bit of a flip-flop and you're thinking, all right, all of your training has has taken place. You're going to do a good job. And you you almost hold your breath. And in 2007, when he was sent, it was very, very scary for, for him to go. But our trust in the training that he had helped us so much. When he went in 2011, it wasn't as dangerous, uh, still a dangerous place, but not as dangerous, I think, as 2007. You were confident that he was prepared for, 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 for whatever might happen, even though there were many things that would be completely out of his control, right? Yes, that's exactly right, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about 2011, because he was a different, at this point, by 2011, he had become, his situation had changed, right? He was a dad. He was, um, he had settled down. There were kids. Um, what was yeah. the, what was it like when, when he decided, when, I mean, I guess he was going back to train, right? I mean, I remember doing stories on this when Canadian soldiers were over there in Kabul training Afghan soldiers so that they could eventually, so we could leave. Canadian soldiers could come home and not have to go back. Right. And that they would be trained uh, as well by soldiers who were trained well here. So they were teaching what they were taught here to the Afghan National Army. And yes, then then we could leave there and they could help their country stay safe. And yes, when he left in 2011, before just before he left, Lindsay and Byron got married. Keller was born in 2005. Right. And when he left in 2011, um, Lindsay was expecting Brielle and Brielle was born October 15th. So Byron was home to see the birth of her. And then he was going back. He was scheduled to come home at Christmas. So we were all very excited for that Christmas. And then his tour would have been finished in the spring. So when he 
left in 2011, I didn't feel as nervous about him going. It felt a little bit more at ease because, hey, he'd been gone in 2007 and came back safe and sound. Mm -hmm. And that was dangerous in 2007, more dangerous, I think, than I think than 2011. Candy Graff is with us this half hour. She is this year's Silver Cross mom. Uh, she will be laying a wreath on Remembrance Day in Ottawa on behalf of all the families, as she says. It's not just about mothers. It's about uh, families who've lost people uh, serving Canada over the years, specifically the 158 who uh, served and died in Afghanistan. Uh, we were talking when we left about about that, that day in 2011. I mean, as much as you can, I, I can't imagine just that phone call. I mean, I and I we we saw so many, you know, we saw ramp ceremonies in Afghanistan, the devastation of it, um, and spoke to other families who'd lost loved ones. But just that day must have been um, indescribable. Absolutely, I have a, a difficult time with what took place after Lindsay called, Byron's wife called to say that he had been killed, because I think a person's memory and your your brain protects you. And and so for me to recall what I even said to her following her telling me that Byron had been killed, I I, it, I haven't got any recollection. It's, it's really strange that you don't have any memory of what I said, what I did. I think it's the shock. I think it's just the shock, Ben, of all of it. I remember seeing um, everything that happened afterwards. Did that bring the family comfort that there was so much, um, there was such an outpouring of support? Absolutely. It was, it was so heartwarming and I'm not sure I, I said thank you enough and I tried and I'm positive. I said thank you hundreds of times to anyone that was involved with, they were just so supportive, all of the military families, all of the families and the people that live here in our little city of Lacombe and virtually across the country. We grew up in Saskatchewan and, and there were there were so many people that called and messaged and and offered their support and thanked us for for Byron's service. And I thanked them for thanking us. So there was a lot of thank yous going around. But I felt like it was important to show them how appreciative we were of all of their support because lots of people in the city of Lacombe didn't know who Byron was, but yet when we got back after his body was brought back to Trenton, we arrived to Lacombe in our vehicle after flying into Edmonton and there were yellow ribbons on trees, on lampposts, on people's front steps. It was heartwarming to, to see that. What will you be thinking when you lay that wreath this year? I mean, it's it's been a it's been a decade. It's been eleven years now. Um, what would you like? What will you, what will you be thinking when you lay that wreath? I'll be thinking that Byron is watching down from heaven, or or maybe both, standing maybe beside me, helping me. And I hope and pray he would be saying, "Good job, mom," because I want to make him proud. I want to do right by him and by the family, and by my husband, and by Lindsay, and by the kids. I want to do right by them and do a good job so that Byron is as proud of me and us as we are of him. Walk tall, he always said, or stand tall. Absolutely. Yes. Hold your head up high. And have, being a Silver Cross mother and parent and family, uh, it's heavy on a person's shoulders. But I think you're, you stand up taller under the weight because you're so proud of that person that was lost. And all of the other Silver Cross mothers and families, I want them to know that we are sort of bonded in an awful way, but we're bonded because of the loss, that heartbreaking loss. And I want them to know that I feel because the person physically is gone, but their love will remain with us forever. And for all Canadians watching this Remembrance Day, what would you like them to know? I would like them to know the pride that I feel for our son and the job that he did. It must be tough for his kids. Um, but I can imagine this year, at least they'll be able to sort of look on to what's happening as well and, and realize that it's not just the family that, that is, that is honoring him, but all of us. And, and it is so appreciated 
that people will will reach out and will text and will email and will will send will say thank you for your son's service. Thank you so much. And it means a lot. And I, I think most likely Lindsay will feel that too, because when she's anywhere that she is, people know who she is in small Morinville, north of Edmonton. And I'm sure she gets the appreciation that that we get because he was just such a good guy and such a good soldier. And we miss him dearly. And and she does, I'm sure, as well. I know she does. I shouldn't say I'm sure. I know she does. Well, Candy Griff, um, we'll be thinking of you on the 11th. And thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. That was wonderful to speak with you. Well, this is the final day of speaking of campaigning. This is the final day of campaigning ahead of the midterm elections in the U.S. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives are for grabs, as are 35 Senate seats and 36 governorships. Uh, A lot at stake here. Republicans only need five seats to take control of the House of Representatives and could take the Senate as well. You know, that one's tied at 50-50. The uh, Democrats have the tiebreaker. Uh, And it could have a major impact on the final two years of President Biden's first term. Here's what Joe Biden had to say tonight. This election isn't a referendum. It's a choice. It's a choice between two fundamentally different visions of America. I've said from the beginning, my objective when I ran was to build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And I tell you what, it's a fundamental shift and it's working compared to the mega, mega Republican trickle-down economics. Joe Biden tonight talking economy. Well, the Republican Party is transformed while under... Uh, former President Trump is not on the ballot. He did announce tonight he'll be making a big announcement uh, in about eight days from now. He's not on the ballot, but Trumpism, as it's called, is thriving in Republican ranks. Talk of stolen elections, other conspiracy theories uh, are rife. Reckoning with January 6th, the attack on the U.S. Capitol is really a non-starter. Dissenting voices have been quickly shown the exit. Um, Marco Rubio of Florida had this to say tonight. We have one job left to do. And that is that turnout and vote and vote in big numbers. These people don't just need to lose. They need to lose by a lot. They need to get the message. We will never be a socialist country. We will never be led by crazy people. You will not take us down the road of Marxism. You will not destroy America. We are going to leave our children what we inherited from our parents, what they deserve to inherit. Marxism. Interesting. I mean, it's an election. Rhetoric is rhetoric. But joining me now is Robert Draper. He's a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine and National Geographic. He's also author of the newly newly released Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. The U.S. I mean, the midterms are tomorrow, so so it feels like everything that you write about in that book is about to be put to the test um, soon. How, how, how do you feel about it going in? Are you looking to see if a lot of the things that you were positing in the book are about to happen? Well, yeah, I think the to me, the crucial question is not so much if um, uh, Republicans regain control of the House of Representatives. I think it's very likely that that will happen, almost a foregone conclusion. The the more salient question is what will they do with that power, and and more acutely, um, will their attempt to be uh, to govern um, be uh, sort of through the perspective of um, behavior that I think is, um, as I reference in the book, delusional. That is to say, um, will um, its uh, legislative agenda be supercharged by notions of um, uh, elections being stolen, uh, the border being wide open and the great replacement theory being underway, um, COVID vaccines being um, uh, somehow a bad thing, uh, and and other lies that tens of millions of Americans um, who are members of the, or who've, who've a Republican um, have been subjected to and have ultimately swallowed whole. So, you know, the, to me, the, the the larger question of my book, Ben, really is, um, you know, it's what happens to a country, what happens to its democracy when one of its two um, um, uh, f- uh, functioning political parties is really in a sway of delusions. And, um, and that's what we'll see put to the test if the Republicans regain power. A term you use in the book that's fascinating because it speaks to just how quickly the change has, has happened um, is the Star Wars bar. 
of 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 representatives you know that people with more you know there's always people with more um extreme views that are elected in, uh, but but often they're they're sidelined within their own parties and and you put it that in a space in a very short period of time um those became sort of the mainstream views of the party how did that happen well not overnight and and i think in a lot of ways um what set much of this in motion um, was the election of Barack Obama and the cultural, racial, and economic anxieties that that um, historical fact triggered. I think that, there, you know, you, if you go back even further, you can certainly see some antecedents to what we're now witnessing in the Republican Party, but definitely um, what catalyzed these anxieties, uh, what put him into overdrive, I should say, was the election of Donald Trump uh, to the presidency and his exploitation of those anxieties for his own political benefit. And and uh, um, and so the people that, w- that you're referencing, Ben, who we might have ordinarily imagined to be total outliers in our political system, most Star Wars bars inhabitants, basically, are people who um, have such proximity ideologically and in other ways to Donald Trump that they have managed to grab his coattails and, you know, under his wings, um, uh, sort of ascend to power themselves. And and, uh, in particular, I focus on a woman named Marjorie Taylor Greene, a freshman congresswoman from the state of Georgia, who um, by anyone's reckoning prior to the Trump era would have certainly been regarded as this very, very marginal, very extreme character who uh, would attract, attract a certain amount of attention in that sort of can't take your eyes off the car wreck way, but who otherwise would be inconsequential. But under Donald Trump, um, that performative extremism has in fact become a very effective way to exploit these grievances, anxieties, to the extent that Marjorie Taylor Greene is now one of the most influential characters in the Republican Party, something that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. You bring up an example of, because for listeners to know, this isn't just you thinking about this stuff from afar. These are all interviews. You've, you've interviewed most almost all of these people, uh, both from the Republican Party as well as Republicans trying to move the party back towards the center, the Liz Cheney's and so forth. But you bring up a really interesting example of your father, because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people from the outside looking in think about. The Republican Party, to a lot of us, always represented what your father thought of it as the Republican Party, sort of small C conservative about values, about the flag, nationalism, so on. Um, and yet it seems to have disappeared so quickly. And I wonder, you spoke to lots of people who tried to bring it back to the middle. What's happened? Why have they failed? Well, um, they failed because the most prominent exponent of that notion that Trump needed to be expunged from the party is a woman named Liz Cheney, an ascendant Republican figure, perhaps the most recognizable woman in Republican politics, uh, who um, whose trajectory went spiraling downwards, even as Marjorie Taylor Greene was spiraling, was was um, soaring upwards. And so people look at Cheney, who um, now was crushed in her own Republican primary, has been exiled from, uh, pushed out of Republican leadership, exiled from her own party, will not have an office this January. And mainstream Republicans say, I don't want to get the Liz Cheney treatment. So their view is better not to challenge um, Trumpism, better not to challenge the president and his proximate warriors like um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, better to just go to ground, hope that they self-immolate, hope that, that Trumpism uh, this MAGA movement somehow dies out. But what they say over and over, what they certainly said to me is, look, you know, if I try to stand up to Trump and the things that he represents, that I'm going to get um I'm going to get challenged in a Republican primary by a Trump loyalist, and I will get bashed to pieces. I will lose power. And the person who comes to Washington will be Trump on steroids. That's not good for anybody. Better instead that I just kind of um, keep my counsel and um, hope that this goes away, at which point I and other adults in the room will regain control of the party. That's the theory, but I do not understand quite um, how it works methodologically. Robert Draper is with us this half hour. He's a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine and National Geographic, author of Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, sits 
in very looms very large in the background of all of this, doesn't he? And you've met him. You've met him many times. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How did how did Trumpism survive without Trump? And and is he coming back? Do you think? Well, because um, Ben. Uh, Trump didn't invent Trumpism if what we mean by Trumpism is basically a populist demagoguery uh, which exploits uh, the grievances of um, a once ruling segment of the population that now feels like America as they know it is being piece by piece stripped away from them, which, by the way, I believe is why. Trump's claim that the election had been stolen from him was so potent um, because not only because they believed uh, like Trump, that Democrats were capable of something so malevolent as to um, uh, you know, create this vast conspiracy that, that would undermine an election, but also because metaphorically uh, this represented a greater sense of loss that they had been feeling. The aforementioned uh, once great America that was their America now being unrecognizable to them. So Trump, in a kind of visceral way, seem to recognize this. It's real ironic, Ben, given that we're talking, after all, about a Manhattan real estate developer, a billionaire, um, who somehow uh, came to be seen by the non-college educated uh, white working man and woman of of middle America as uh, their true representative. It's, you know, the kind of thing you it's really, really hard to fathom until you, you know, start to break it down and realize that in a lot of ways they share um, the same enemies, which is much more crucial than what they had in common. Uh, and that, uh, you know, Trump himself had his own sort of um, resentments against um, a cultural elite of Manhattan that never really um, took to him, that always considered him a bit gauche. And so even as he craved their acceptance, um, he chafed uh, the inability to actually receive that. So that's that's really kind of set the stage for all this now as to what what we make of Trump now and what his immediate future will be. Um, the expectation is that he's going to announce any day now, uh, perhaps even tonight, um, that he's going to run um, in 2024. I, I'm certainly utterly convinced myself that he will do so in a painted himself into a corner where if he doesn't do so, then his relevancy um, uh, ceases or at least dwindles to near nothingness as attention then turns to whoever the Republican candidate, the new, um, you know, the standard bearer of the GOP will be. And um, and so Trump, who so craves uh, the attention and the power and the glory that he's had over the last few years is going to be loath to give that up. So um, so I think we have every reason to expect that he'll be announcing any day now. A lot of this book stemmed from your experiences on January the 6th, which was you were at the Capitol. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really, I mean, anybody who's ever covered a, a bigger story before knows what day one of a big story feels like, right? This was, I guess, day one for you. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've written many of these in the past. Uh, but that day is still stuck with you, right? I mean, the, the, everything that transpired that day and the way the Republican Party views that day in the rearview mirror is really sort of the essence of what this is all about. Yeah, that's very aptly put, Ben. I mean, it's that day has stuck with me on every meaningful level, on a kind of you know emotional and psychological level. Uh, the trauma of having seen these policemen staggering in, beaten and and pepper sprayed uh, at this building that signifies you know a bastion of democracy, a place that I would go to several times a month, um, was. The kind of spectacle that I, as someone who also writes for National Geographic, might have expected to encounter in Somalia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Afghanistan, or other places that I visited, but not in the United States. So that was a kind of cognitive dissonance that was really, really traumatizing and sticks with me in a very unsettling way. But on top of that, it sticks with me because it's um, um, it was a moment when one would have expected the Republican Party to say, this is what we've wrought, you know, um, by fanning the flames of these election lies, uh, we uh, essentially um, rolled out the red carpet. Uh, to a couple of thousand people who stormed the Capitol and um, and attempted to overthrow 
uh, a democratically held election by physical force. And uh, this is not what our party's about. We can't have this. We should purge all of the elements that gave rise to this from our party right away. And that begins with saying to Donald Trump, um, you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. But of course, that's not what happened at all. And instead, what we have seen is this kind of scattershot um, view of of January the 6th on the part of the the Republican Party that at times is um, uh, sort of mitigating what took place, being dismissive of its seriousness at other times saying, oh, it was serious, all right. But in fact, it was all staged by the FBI um, or that perhaps, um, yeah, there was violence, but it was the violence of Antifa. And and uh, uh, and so um, instead of moving towards, you know, back towards a kind of normalcy, um, the Republican Party post January the 6th went deeper and deeper down this sinkhole of conspiratorial thinking and of a factually challenged parallel universe with a result that we now have tens of millions of Americans um, who identify as Republicans, who believe these things. And, and what's of real consequence to me, and I'll finish just on this thought, Ben, is that, that you know, at least traditionally Americans, um, as diverse as our country is, have been brought together, have been unified by, by some kind of crisis, whether it's world war, whether it's depression, or whether it is um, uh, a terrorist attack as on September 11th. Uh, January the 6th was that moment, and yet all the moment did was deepen um, our polarities and um, and has divided us even more thoroughly than we were before that horrible event took place. Robert Draper, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Ben. You know, we're back during the pandemic and just coming out of sort of the early days of the pandemic after everyone was locked down for so long. There was this, these many stories out there that that there was going to be a baby bust. There was no way that being cooped up together like that was going to lead to more children. It just wasn't. If anything, it was going to be record lows. Like it was not going to happen. Um, well, apparently in the U.S., that's that's not what happened. They figured out that if you look at the numbers, there was certainly a drop in births. Part of it was because there were so few people coming to the country giving birth, so few foreign nationals there giving birth. They were elsewhere, I guess. I think they're looking into what that could explain in the states, at least. But it turns out women who are American, not American-born, American citizens who were there. So the travel restrictions came in, and that had an impact. But the fertility rates uh, actually went up amongst a certain group of women in America. And they're trying to figure out why that is. Because clearly, if that's what happened, because it reversed years of trends the other way, if that's what happened, maybe there's something in there that could help um, understand, you know, make make it easier for families to have kids if they want them. And what they looked at specifically, obviously, was, was uh, work from home, remote work. You know, if you save the commute, you're there. Um, and that's not just moms, that's parents in general, um, that that allows for more flexibility when it comes to having kids. Hannah Schwant is an associate professor at the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and he joins us now. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this was one of those stories because I think last a lot of us paid close attention to this story. Uh, there was a lot of talk about how being locked up together was not going to result in any kind of baby boom, that in fact, it was the opposite. We were going to see a real drop uh, in fertility. Uh, that isn't necessarily completely untrue, but you found that uh, there's more to the numbers than meets the eye. Exactly. So we see that, you know, there wasn't a baby bust or like a strong baby bust as, as we would have been predicted. Um but instead, we see some numbers declining, like some declining numbers in 2020, which at first glance looks like, oh, this must be part of the baby bus story. But it turns out to be the declines were too early um, to be caused by the pandemic, right? They were like right in the months up following the pandemic. So these were all babies that were uh, perceived, uh, conceived already long before the start of the pandemic. Um, so th that decline we see, and that is actually driven by um, foreign-born mothers who couldn't enter the country anymore and who would, in the normal times, enter the country to give birth in the U.S., and they couldn't do that anymore. So that's the decline that we see. And if we instead focus on U.S.-born mothers, so mothers, you know, women who 
who stayed in the country that we can follow over time well that are not affected by by travel restrictions there we see a small baby bump um, in response to the pandemic so an increase instead of a dramatic decrease which is which is counterintuitive i guess for a lot of us because um we that's not what we thought was going to happen so how much of a bump has it been so um you know comparable to let's say the baby boom in the 60s definitely a smaller decline so more like in the single digits or increases in the single digits so you know like 5 to 6% um at the end of 2021 but still it's remarkable that for the first time we see that uh, uh, fertility responds positively to a crisis because typically in, in times of economic crisis when people lose their jobs they it's not the time they have more kids or they start a family so that's the one thing and uh, the other thing is that of course you know um, uh, we have been already on a downward trajectory for over a decade so this is the the first major reversal since the great uh, recession so that is that is, has been very surprising and 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 a remarkable development for us even if the baby bump as we call it it's not a baby boom it's 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 you know it's a small increase in fertility rates but a remarkable one yeah and just from a more uh, academic point of view there is a, a strong belief that that fertility rates if they're better do, does reflect well on a society right that when when people are uh, confident or about the future and so forth they have kids i mean yes um in general we see that economic factors quite well explain actually fertility trends and fertility you know fluctuations longer term trends it all is explained quite well for economic factors because you know having a child or having an, another child is really one of the most consequential decisions you can make in your life and people are very aware of that it seems so people you know are very careful about those decisions so that where you see it generally you know and, and correlated with economic conditions um, the other question that you brought up is like, is is are more babies better, right? Do we want to have more births? Do we want a fewer births? I mean, these are complex questions, right? And in the 60s, everybody talked about the population bomb. And yes, the world probably can't sustain exponential uh, population growth forever. So in general, it's good that we that as countries get richer, somehow people want to have fewer children, not more. And so that is pretty good news. But in recent years, we have seen that, you know, many developed countries actually fell below replacement rates. So then, you know, populations start shrinking. And from a societal point of view, from a policy, um, uh, social planner point of view, that's a problem, right? Because our systems are not built for shrinking populations. They're actually more like built on the assumption of increasing populations. Um, at the individual level, you know, is it good or is it bad? Uh, everyone should decide them for themselves whether they want to, you know, have kids or not. But to the extent that low fertility rates reflects restrictions that people didn't really like, you know, opt into willingly, right? And for example, women having getting more education, having greater uh, longer careers. Mm. I mean, these are all great things. Mm. But if at the end it gets very difficult to have the children that you want to have, um, then this is not necessarily a good, that is, you know, that is quite clearly a bad thing, right? right? So in that sense, if part of the low fertility rate is not just that people want to have fewer children, but that maybe people don't have the time to have children, or once they want to have the children, it's too late, uh, then that is also a negative thing. And so in that sense, you know, given that we are no longer in the population bomb uh, type of world, uh, you know, in the US and Canada and Europe, uh, all of this increase, like the increase overall, I think is a very positive news and like a small positive outcome of, of the pandemic. Now, we, we know that we've been reading once again about tough economic times, right? Inflation is way up in America. It's way up here. It's way up in Britain. It's way up in Europe. Uh, would you expect, I mean, given normal the normal course of things, that would suggest we're about to hit into another downswing, right, in infertility? Yeah, so I think the um, the real big downswings they typically come from from increase in unemployment and like full blown recessions, and you know that we don't see yet. Um, I think inflation itself isn't you know necessarily clear in which direction that goes, but uh, in terms of like fertility. But yeah, I mean, the economic conditions, the outlook is uncertain, even though I think we, we always say that, right? It's all, right? It's always uncertain. And there's always like, oh, you know, there there could be some crisis luring around the corner. Um, I think the question is, you know, how 
how what happens to this baby bump as as we are get, getting maybe hopefully out of the pandemic. So first we see in California data where we we can follow fertility up to the end of the third quarter of 2022 and we see that the baby bump seems to persist and part of that is probably driven by the fact that the you know the increase in workplace flexibility and work hours that uh, we experienced during the pandemic um and that probably uh, kind of like um weakened the the constraints on 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 fertility on a family planning especially for for higher skilled women right with a college degree and so on um those uh, uh, workplace flexibility increases they some of them might remain in place right and um because employers learn that this works employees are dem- demanding it the technology is there um so there's there's some hope that some of that might 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 remain I guess what that points out to is that part of the what's what's restricted uh, some women from wanting to have children is just the inability for the that there aren't enough services out there or that the system isn't flexible enough for for childcare for for time away from work maternity leave and so on hasn't been plentiful enough to make it worthwhile and now with remote work maybe some of those decisions are a little bit uh, easier to make exactly and I think. You know, in a sense, society, like we make like progress, I have always feeling like one step at a time. And once we have done made the step, we're like, oh, gosh, we forgot about this other aspect. Right. And I think the whole progress we made with like um, female labor force participation, female education. Right. That uh, women, you know, they, they they get the same education, even more education than than men. And, and, and already as children, you know, young girls are taught, you know, you can become anything. Right. Which is great. And, and that's exactly what we want. But at the same time, um, it puts a lot of pressure on them and like puts them in a very difficult p- position. Once you have all the education, which takes a long time, and then you start a demanding career, how do you fit in children? Right. And of course, that is a conversation that we not only have to have for like young children, girls, but also young boys, like growing up saying like, Hey, if we want to have a society where, you know, where, 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 where we, where we have equality, then we have to think what that means about family planning. Right. And, and, and how we can all together, uh, uh make, make, make that uh, share the burden and, and make it happen that women who have long, long education and have demanding careers, um, can still have children. Right. And one part is workplace flexibility. Another part is, is, you know, the, the sharing of the parental burden. And by the way, you know, we are only talking about women having more flexible work schedules during the pandemic. This, of course, was also true for their partners, right? Right, of course. So yeah. it, it could well be that that the pandemic helped already to for the man to, you know, make some of those shifts towards uh, uh, joining joining the, um, uh, or like taking more responsibilities at home, which of course would be another wonderful kind of like development overall. This, and um, so I think in, it's, it's this really interesting case where, you know, there's always a question from a social science point of view, what can we learn from the pandemic? And it's always like a lot of interesting things happen, but then everything happened at the same time, right? So that makes it difficult to, to, to isolate individual factors. But I think in terms of fertility, what's interesting is that, you know, many factors that happened would actually we've been predicted to decline fertility, right? And take to the unemployment, the uncertainty and so on. But we see a few factors where we, where we think this could have had a positive impact and we see those overall positive impacts. And the job will now be to to go back to the data and we're working on this at the moment, mm-hmm. try to really try to try to isolate those those factors, the workplace flexibility, for example, to see whether it mattered, whether it was for women, for men, for high skilled, low skilled, and so on. And, and, and to really try to learn a few lessons and maybe, you know, help make society a little bit better with better policies. Um, and, and coming out, you know, with like some positive lessons out of this really, really, uh, you know, horrible and, and dark time. It is. And, and yet, in some ways, such an interesting time to study, um, to study trends because so much, you're right. So much was going on and there's always so many stories behind those numbers and the sudden change, the, the, the drastic change, the experiment we all went through just yeah, to see what I, the impact yeah, was. Yeah. Exactly. And I think in particular, if we expect something really bad to happen or like really a lot of births being missing and then we suddenly say, wait, births actually went up, right? Despite all of this. That really tells us, like, hey, there, 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 there must be things that we can implement even in normal times, right? That we don't need a, a global pandemic for for those changes to be made. That maybe people can balance their their private and and work lives a little bit better, right? 
and and I think we we in general I think that that is something we are seeing over the great resignation and so on. They're like, hey, we we can envision our work lives a little bit differently, and things continue to work. It's not that like suddenly you know production is all halted and 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 uh, you know we are having a big recession or something. So. I think this is these are very you know exciting times in a way and I find it always amazing when society manages to you know even you know facing such a big challenge and such a, like a deadly virus and it was really worst case scenario in so many ways and still there seems to be like social innovation and progress and you know maybe we can take the right lessons and 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 yeah have have a, have some positive uh, takeaways from that well, I look forward to seeing what you find next. Hannah Schwant, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 